Well, it's been another interesting week in politics, hasn't it? And we've got a new president-elect in the US. We've had all that to do with Brexit. And this is what somebody, a friend of mine, put on his Facebook page. If you're a musician, you'll be thinking, yes, indeed. <laughs> if not, go and speak to Simon, and he will explain it to you afterwards. But it's Remembrance Sunday, isn't it? It's a day when we think about the world. And we think that actually the default mode of our world is not peace and security. But actually what happens, because we're fallen human beings is that we sadly fall into a world that is full of war, that is full of enemies, that is full of all kinds of bad things. Well, we're back in the, the book of Ezra this morning, and the Jews were, were no stranger to, to war. They were no stranger to conflict and pain. And we're picking up um, this week on chapters 5 and 6. Now, I come with a bit of trepidation, actually, because Chris Goswami did such a great job of chapter 4 that I feel it's a bit of a hard act to follow, um, but I, I'll try my best. So, bit of the big picture, how we got to where we're up to now. I'll take that off the screen because that, here's a timeline just in case you're interested of, of what's going on. The Jews had been in exile in Babylon for, for 70 years. And now they were eventually going to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Chapter 1 was all about how they were called back home. How Cyrus, the king of Persia, said, go back and rebuild the temple. God had stirred his heart. Alongside that, we saw also that God was stirring the hearts of the people. So they wanted to go back. So you get this sort of dual thing in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is a chapter you can go and read at your own leisure because it's a chapter of complicated names, all these people who decided to go back. Chapter 3 was a lot of details about the actual rebuilding and how, for some of the older people, it caused them great pain when they remembered the glory of the first temple and then they saw what was being rebuilt. Chapter 4, we see the people faced with opposition and forcibly, the work on the temple comes to a halt. And then we see there's actually quite a big time gap between the halt of the work of the temple and the temple's um, construction. You get, it's almost a sort of 20-year period between those things happening, and we'll pick up that in a minute. Chapter 5, the building continues. It's encouraged by the prophets. There's two lengthy letters in chapter 5, back and two between a governor of Trans-Euphrates and then we get a reply letter back by Darius, who is now king of Persia. Cyrus has now died, and we're further on down the line. And so we get to what we're going to read this morning, which is Ezra chapter 6, verses 13 through to 22. If you've got a Bible in front of you, it's on page 459. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent... Tetenai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Sheshesh Bosnai, and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the, ma- the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and a sinner offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, and one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions of the Levites and their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. 
On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord for the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of your people long ago, and I just want to pray that we may be faithful people as well. I want to pray that just as we see in this um, chapter that people listen to your voice and obey, that we will be people of obedience. We've been thinking about you as the great shepherd of your people. Lord, would you shepherd us in the way that you want us to go? We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So there's quite a long gap between chapters 4 and 5 when the building work gets stopped. And um, there's these letters that go back and to um, between the various governors and the people who were overseeing that part of the Persian Empire. Now, two decades is a long time between stopping a building and then the building being finished. And it's especially difficult when, you de- when you're sort of um, contacting government officials. Anyone ever rung HMRC? Yeah, I remember ringing HMRC once, and I was on the phone for 40 minutes. Now, I say I was on the phone for 40 minutes. That was until somebody answered it. And you're there, and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. Because governments don't tend to run things quickly. Sorry if there's anyone here who works for HMRC. <laughs> but not for years and years and years. I think eventually we'd put the phone down, wouldn't we? But there's a lot more going on here than just sort of bureaucracy and things like that. People's hearts are changing. People's hearts have actually gone off this building project. People had started to think otherwise than what actually they'd been told to do. Now, we're not going to get all of that from the book of Ezra. We have to go dipping into the two prophets, the prophet of Haggai and the prophet of Zechariah. So let's have a look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. You don't need to turn to it. These verses will be on the screen. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. This is after the people have gone back to Jerusalem. They started building. They'd stopped. And now this is what they're saying. The time has not yet come. Carries on in that chapter. This is the Lord speaking. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while the house, that's the house of the Lord, remains a ruin? What they'd done was got distracted. What God is saying is how is it that you're living in these nice panelled houses I couldn't find a picture any better than that of a panelled house, but let's let's go with that for now. How come you're living in these great places when actually my temple, the one that I brought you here to build, is still in ruins? Now, I don't want to add to the accounts that, that we find here, but I think we can probably deduce that the people had just got distracted, that they were seeing that actually their, their own needs were more important than trying to get this temple built. Yes, the opposition had come, but that was years and years and years ago, and they've done absolutely nothing about it. God's word, God's vision, 
still stood for these people. God had spoken over them. Go and rebuild the temple. Don't know about you, but I find that a very easy thing to do in life. To feel that God has told me to do something, to get that sense that actually the Spirit has spoken to me, and then to get distracted and do something totally different. Does anybody find that's an easy thing to do? And then the the things of God get sort of pushed onto the back burner. Now, we all know God has called us to be disciples of his, to to make disciples of all nations. We've got the Great Commission. We're told to be kingdom-building people. But God also gives us very specific callings in life, doesn't he? The New Testament talks clearly about how God gives some gifts to others and some gifts to ourselves. Have we heard God speak, yet we've put it on the back burner? I don't know if you've ever had that experience where God has spoken directly to you and you felt that God has called you to do something and then a bit of discouragement has come along. You felt a bit under pressure. You've had a bit of a human wobble and then suddenly you found you're ignoring what God has called you to be. Just less than a, a decade ago now, um, I first started to explore the idea that God was calling me to be a minister. And at that time, me and Claire, were, we were down in Bristol. I was working as a music director down there in a, a church. And I'd just got around to filling in all my forms to apply for Baptist ministry. I'd got my referees lined up to say, hopefully, nice things about me and those kind of things. Sent everything off, and then two weeks later, I was suddenly taken down quite seriously ill, to a point where we started to question, is this what you have for us, God? Is this actually going to be physically doable? And there was that massive sense of human wobble. You know, God, we know that this, you've given us this vision, but actually all this has happened now. Does that not sort of take precedence over what you have said? And there was a regional minister who I remember Claire phoning, actually, and talking to, to him. And he said, look, if God has called you, God will see you through. Even if things look different, God will see you through. You need to be a people of perseverance. I wonder how many of our lives will be lived and will actually be focused on our panelled houses or whatever the equivalent of that is for you, rather than that vision, that sense of calling that God may have placed on your life. I wonder as a church whether we get distracted with the panelled house rather than actually what God has called us to be and do as his people. We know there are going to be consequences for the people in Jerusalem. If you look in Haggai chapter 1, a bit further on, you don't need to turn to it now, but verses 10 and 11, it says that the Lord sent a drought upon his people. They've stopped listening to him, and the Lord sends a drought. Why? Well, it can be very difficult sometimes to understand the Old Testament. And I don't want to say I've got all the answers here by any means or oversimplify what is going on. But I wonder if one thing that God was doing here was just giving the people a wake-up call. Saying, actually, you've got distracted. This temple project is now on pause. You're doing the easy thing. You're living quietly in your nice panelled houses, but you're not fulfilling the very thing that I've called you to be. I wonder if part of them was actually thinking, well, you know, we've given it a go, but... We've had all this opposition that's come from these governors of Babylonia and Persia, and we'll just sit back and we'll go for the easy road. Actually, it doesn't look like our God is that powerful at all. I wonder whether something of that was going through their minds. But then the psalmist comes in, Psalm 121, verse 2. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 148, verse 8. Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. 
It's important, isn't it, that we remember that the God who calls us is the one who commands the universe in his hands. The one who calls us is the maker of heaven and earth. The one who had said to the people of Israel, go and rebuild the temple, is the one who'd made everything. He is the one who is all-powerful. I'm not for a minute suggesting this morning that if you know, God has called us to something individually or as a church and we ignore it, that you'll go out in the garden and suddenly find your lawn is parched. Or you're going to greet your greenhouse and find the tomatoes have stopped growing. I'm not going to suggest that that is necessarily the case. But I think there is something that is the case. If God has given us a vision, either individually or as a church, and we put that on the back burner, and we don't listen to it, and we don't put it into practice, then there is a grave danger that we will become something less than God has called us to be. That we will put all our efforts into our panelled houses, and we as individuals will become a caricature of ourselves that God calls us to be if we're doing things for his kingdom. We may look like we're successful, but actually the success has gone into the panelled housing rather than it has going in to do those very things that God has called us to do. I just wonder if your panelled house building, now whatever that is in your life, I don't know what things it is that you're building for yourself, has that usurped your God-given calling to do something or to be something? If today you're a disciple of Jesus, Jesus has saved you so that you can serve him. Have you still got distracted with building panelled houses? You still got distracted. God wants us to be a people of perseverance. Secondly, what we find in this passage is about the prophetic, how the prophets have a really key role in what is going on here. The building carries on, and we see that um, the prophets have started to speak into the situation. Read Haggai again, um, if you get the chance, and you'll find out that they, um, the people start listening now to what the prophets are saying, to what God is saying. And it says in Ezra um, chapter 6, verse 2, So the elders of the Jews continue to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Ida. Has anybody ever had a building project done on their house of any description? Yeah, we, uh, we built, a, uh, built a house, bought a house, get the right one. We bought a house once that basically needed everything doing to it, needed a new roof, needed um, new heating, it needed a new kitchen, new bathroom, the lot. Now, we had on our list of things to do, we, ne- we needed to contact a roofer, we needed to contact an electrician, we needed to contact a plumber. We didn't have profit on the list. Have you ever read that passage and thought, why is a prophet included into the people who encourage the building project? What on earth is that about? Why not a project manager? You know, we've got some good project managers in the room here. Why not one of them? Why the prophet? Well, I think we need to look at a question. You know, what is prophecy? What is prophecy in this context? Well, over the years, I've had several attempts to give my own definition of prophecy. Every time I think I've nailed it, i found it's not big enough. And I've had to go back to the drawing board and say, actually, God, what are you saying? What is prophecy all about? Because prophecy in the Bible, it's not just merely about foretelling. It's not about people speaking what is going to happen in the future, although it does definitely include that. But it isn't just for its own time either. Otherwise, there'd be no point in us reading the Old Testament prophets. I came across this quote this week, and I really like this. 
says, of course the prophets speak to their own time and penetratingly expose the spiritual and social conditions. Yet the reason they have such relevance, and not only to their own times, but to every time, is they speak from an eternal perspective. Or in other words, what the prophets do is this. They urge people to return to the Lord. The prophets are constantly those who say, come back, come back to following the Lord, come back to a life of holiness, come back to living the way that the Lord wants you to live. They speak to their own time, they expose what is going on, they say you should be living with justice and mercy at the center. They say, come back and start rebuilding, get back and capture the vision of renewal that God has given you. And they also look forward to what is to come. Anybody know how many prophecies in the Old Testament look forward to Jesus? Loads. Depends on who you ask. Somebody conveniently said it was one for every day of the year. I think that's probably stretching it a little bit. But it's over 300. Well over 300. And they're constantly pointing, the prophets are pointing to what God will do. That there will be this great day of the Lord when God steps into time and space. Look at this. This is from Zechariah, one of the prophets that is listed um, in this chapter of Ezra 6. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's that talking about? You can answer it, somebody. The entry to Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. Centuries before, Zechariah has been given a glimpse of what Jesus will be like of what Jesus will do. So the prophets are always calling forward. And so it's into the context of these prophets speaking into the, the, the life of the Jewish nation that actually the building work continues. They're encouraged to look back. You know, get stuck into being a holy people. Be the people who God wants you to be. They have a message for this time and this day. And it's all done in the context of eternity. But what about us? What about us? You know, the New Testament clearly speaks of prophecy. It speaks of it as being one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, one of the gifts that the Spirit gives. The New Testament speaks about prophecy in all kinds of different ways. Acts chapter 11, verse 28, a prophet warns of a famine, and it allows the church to prepare. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. We could go through all kinds of different um, verses through the New Testament, but it carries on into the life of the early church as well. If you read books from the, the next generation of church leaders, there were still prophets going round, people who were listening to what God was saying, speaking into the life of the early church through the second, third, and into the fourth centuries, right past the end of the apostolic age. But New Testament prophecy isn't the same as Old Testament prophecy. An Old Testament prophet comes in and says, this is what God says, thus saith the Lord. You don't go and test what an Old Testament prophet is saying. It is God speaking to his people. Yet in the New Testament, we're called to test the prophets, to test the prophecies. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 21. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. I think the New Testament makes it abundantly clear. God has not stopped speaking to us. God has not stopped 
speaking to us. He wants to speak to us by his spirit. There are those who will receive the words of the Lord for our time and for our day. He wants to encourage us about building the kingdom of God, about the vision that God has for us as individuals and as a church. We are told to test contemporary prophecy, yes, to weigh it against scripture, to discern whether it's from the Lord. God will never speak contrary to his word in the Bible. But we're not told to ignore it. We're told to test it, but not to ignore it. But I think there's a real danger here, and that's that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We do exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying here. We think that actually if somebody says this is potentially from God that I'm sharing with you today, we say, well, that's far too dangerous. And we just chuck it out, and we don't put any attention to it at all. We're told to test. Test it against Scripture. You know, I believe we need those amongst us who are prepared to put the head above the parapet and saying, can you test this? I wonder if God is saying this to us. I wonder if God is wanting to say this to our life as a church together. Can you test it? Can you see if this lines up with Scripture? Can you pray and discern if this is God? As I want to ask us, are we open to God speaking to us as a church? Are we really genuinely open to having that genuine prophetic voice in our midst? We've already mentioned today, on Thursday we have a church meeting. We've got some really big decisions that we're starting to make. We're making a decision about Chris Goswami this coming week. We're thinking about our vision, our long-term sense of of calling as a church, what is God um, calling us to be. We've got the follow-on from the rock conversation. I don't know about you, but I believe we need to hear the Lord's voice. We need to hear what God is saying to us. Very different thinking of a good idea to having something that is from the heart of God. I think our role as the church is to say, Holy Spirit, what are you doing so we can join in with you? Not try and make something up and then say, God, will you bless it? It's a very different way around. We need that voice of the Lord speaking to us. Lord, we need to hear you. We need to hear how you want us to announce the gospel in our day and in our time. And that's true for us individually as well, isn't it? Just as it is true for us as a church. You need to hear, I need to hear what God has to say to us. Are we open? Are we open to the Spirit's guiding and leading? So I've looked at perseverance, looked at prophetic. It's the first time in about five years I managed to get a sermon with three things that start with the first letter. But this fitted very nicely. Because the next thing is, the Passover. The temple is dedicated. A great celebration takes place. Old Testament offerings, you know, these animal sacrifices are made to the Lord to atone for the sin of his people and to celebrate what has happened. And if you look at this in Ezra chapter um, 6, you're looking at a few hundred animals that are sacrificed. Now we read that and probably think, well, that's a lot. What an awful lot of animals. When you compare it to what happened at the dedication of the earlier temple, Solomon's temple, It's a pitiful amount that is sacrificed here. Solomon's temple is 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. By the time you get to the temple in Ezra chapter 6, it's about a 200th of the amount. Pitiful by comparison. You know, sometimes I, I think we fall into the trap of thinking that actually, if God is in something, it must always be bigger and better. And that God somehow is impressed with our grandiose schemes and wanting things to look good. 
But actually, this isn't what we find here. These people were obedient. And it was massively smaller than what had gone on before. Things are not done by our strength, but by being obedient to what God says. This is actually one of my favorite verses, I think, of the, the Old Testament prophets. Zechariah 4, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the one who's involved in the temple building. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Sometimes I think we get that a bit the wrong way around, don't we? We think that actually if things look good, it must be God. But actually, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. When we're obedient to what God calls us to do, when we trust in him. What mattered to God here was not the size of the celebration, but the hearts of the people. So following the dedication, we then get to the last part of the passage, the Passover. The Passover, if, if you know anything about um, the story of the Exodus, it's the celebration of the time when the last of the plagues was going to come on the Egyptians um, as God was, was um, leading his people out to freedom. And what was, what was going to happen was the firstborn in every house was going to be killed. But those um, Jews, those Israelites who were there, if they killed a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, the firstborn was saved. And what the Bible very clearly tells us is that that looks forward to Jesus. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, I'll just read the last part of the verse. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Just as the Jews were celebrating the great rescue from Egypt, so I believe today we are called to celebrate the great rescue that Jesus has brought us. If Jesus, our Passover lamb. And so if we've been given a God-given vision, if we've been given something that has been spoken into our lives, that is what the Holy Spirit wants for us, if as a church all that has taken place, if it doesn't point to Jesus, actually we're still wasting our time. Everything needs to point to Jesus, who is our Passover lamb, who has been sacrificed. So today to us. I wonder if God is speaking to us this morning. I wonder perhaps whether you, you may have got a bit distracted and you need to be just called back to be a person of perseverance. Or perhaps individually or as a church, we, we're perhaps not listening to God in the way that he's calling us to. And we need to, just as the people in this passage were prepared to listen to the prophets, so we need to open ourselves up again to the voice of God speaking to us. And thirdly, we just need to remember that actually it's all about Jesus. It's about his kingdom. It's about what he calls us to do. Everything will always point us to him. Can I pray for us? And then we're going to sing as we bring our service to a close. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just want to come now and say sorry for those times in my own life when I know that I have not put you first. When I've done anything but listen to you. When I've got distracted by whatever those panelled houses are. Lord, I want to pray for, for each of us here that you'll help us to get our life back into the order that you call us to have it. With Jesus at the centre. 
And Lord, if there are those things today that you have called us to, I pray that you'll give us the courage and the sense of perseverance to get on with those things. That your name might be glorified. And Lord, today, this Remembrance Sunday, again, we just remember that great sacrifice that you paid for us. We remember all that you have done. Help us to be people who are thankful, people who look forward, and people who get on with what you've called us to do in the present. We ask it for Jesus' name. Amen.